Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Dan Bongino. I have an obligation to come on the air with data and material and research. I can't just say trade stinks. Thanks for tuning in. The Dan Bongino Show. Well, let's jump right in because we have no time for nonsense. Get ready to hear the truth about America. When I was a young man, I don't remember it being sexy to want to l- allow a nanny state to control my life. On a show that's not immune to the facts with your host, Dan Bongino. All right, welcome to the Renegade Republican with Dan Bongino. Producer Joe, how are you today? Hey, babe, I'm doing well. How you doing? Yeah, man, good. I got a couple uh, additions to prior shows. Or I got a lot of email. That Universal Basic Income show we did, yeah. I got tons of email on. Tons. I mean, up there with one of the top two or three shows content-wise audience feedback I've ever received. So a couple things on that. And it's just a lot, a lot of news going on. Let's get right into it. Today's show brought to you by our buddies at Brickhouse Nutrition. You know I love these guys. I have the, the best story ever about having to do two Fox News hits in the morning, no coffee around. I'm like, what do I do? I look in my bag and there it is. It magically appears, Joe. Brickhouse Nutrition, great energy product, dawn to dusk. I'm like, oh, thank God I had this with me. So I take a dawn to dusk uh, pill. It's an energy pill for them. It's, it is a proprietary blend. It is the best energy product out. There's no crashes. There's no spikes. You don't get the jitters from it or anything. You don't have to worry about having a cup of coffee every 10 minutes. Stuff's designed for cops, for firemen, for working moms, for people, for nurses, for assembly line workers. People need to be on their game all day. You don't get any of the crashes. Stuff got me through the day. It's a fantastic product. Go give it a look. You will not regret it. I love these brick house guys. They make the best stuff out there. I spoke to the doctor who designed this stuff. He's all over it. It's called Dawn to Dust. Go to BrickHouseNutrition.com slash Dan. That's BrickHouseNutrition.com slash Dan. And pick up Dawn to Dust today. Give me your feedback on it. I promise you'll like it. All right. Um, I don't know even where to start today. Let's go. Okay, the uh, breaking news first. Let's do that because uh, it's important. The Paris Accords. So it's breaking this morning that Trump is looking at pulling out of the Paris Accords. This was a climate change, climate, global warming, whatever the left wants to call it today or tomorrow, based on their, uh, you know, their, their manipulation of the language agreement. And it was an executive agreement. It was not an international treaty that Obama agreed to in 2015. Now, just a couple quick notes on this thing. I don't want to beat it to death because it's not been confirmed yet, but it's breaking today that Trump is leaning heavily towards pulling out. Number one, I think it is a good idea, but let me give you the pros and cons again so we can do a reasonable show where you can make a reasoned analysis, you know, unlike uh, you know how liberals handle business here. The pros to this is this could be used as a, a, a far left interest group bludgeon to file lawsuits against companies who don't comply with this, even though it's not an international treaty. The left will sue for anything. Mm-hmm. And the gist of it is the, the Paris Accord agreements, uh, Paris Accords, the agreements, Joe, was that countries would set these emissions controls targets. In other words, they would release less greenhouse gases. The difference between this and uh, the Kyoto agreements were this was kind of a, 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 as it's been referred to as a bottom up agreement. In other words, countries could set their own targets for emission controls, greenhouse gas controls. Kyoto was top down, meaning that the agreement said, you all will do this. 
All of you. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, Kyoto, you all have to set this target for greenhouse emissions controls, greenhouse gas controls. The the Paris Accords agreements where you countries individually will set their own targets. Now, the 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 pros to this are the the well uh, the, uh excuse me the cons which I just went through. I think the left will use this as a bludgeon to sue the snot out of everyone in the United States all the time. So I think it was a great idea to get out of it. The pros of it, even from a conservative perspective or relatively conservative perspective, is some are saying. Well, it's not. There's nothing binding about it, Joe. Which there isn't. Right. There's no it, matter of fact. Even the 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 signature, the signatories to the Paris Accords have said that it was really a name and shame game. Mm-hmm. In other words, that if you didn't say cut your greenhouse gas emissions according to your own country's tailored individual targets, mm-hmm. that there's nothing they can really do. They can only name and shame you. Which I, I, again, I'm not saying we should have stayed in. I think it was a good decision or to pull out of these things. But I'm just saying that some conservatives have said, well, this thing's not legally binding anyway, so we might as well get a seat at the table, right? Mm. When this thing, when these, uh, for the for these talks, when they continue to go on, but given the gravity of the situation, I I don't I don't buy that. Why should we should have a seat at the table for a table that can be used to bludgeon us over the head with lawsuits? <laughs> I don't see the logic in that. And it was one big problem I had with the Paris Accords. It, it's a big takeaway for you all. There's a section of it that talks about finance flows to to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Time out. You know where I'm going with this because we've done these shows before. <laughs> Whenever you start talking about, quote, finance flows between countries for greenhouse gas emissions, what does that mean? <laughs> that means redistribution, babe, according yep. to Joe Armacost's language. <laughs> Absolutely. Make no mistake, this is going to be used in the future to get U.S. taxpayers to pay off developing companies because those developing companies have been you know, quote, exploited by U.S. capitalism and freedom. And we had our moment in the sun and we're really rich. And it's now the best opportunity to take money from U.S. taxpayers and give it to Zimbabwe because we clearly took advantage from them in developing our own economic engine. It's nonsense. It's all crap. It's all part of the farther. So whenever you see finance flows in an agreement, run for the hills because it is a raid on U.S. taxpayers. We are where we are because of American ingenuity, American entrepreneurialism, and American hard work. We owe it to ourselves. We don't owe it to anybody else. We didn't steal our prosperity from anybody else. So when I saw finance flows and an agreement was signed, I was like, run for the hills and right. run fast. Okay. Uh, Kathy Griffin. Whoa. There what we go. The- hell happened with that yesterday so comedian i've been getting a lot of comments on this given my history as a secret service agent kathy griffin the d-list comedian at best maybe even the the f-list who knows she is a total disaster griffin released a photo yesterday she's a big rabid anti-trumper she put a photo out uh who told her this was a good idea i have no idea of her holding a decapitated bloody head of donald trump i i i i you can look what? at the picture yourself. Saw you saw it, it right, Joe? Yeah, it's Did you disgusting. guys cover it on the show? Yeah, yeah it's, it, it was. It, it's horrendous. It's gross. Uh, you know, folks, if you read my first book about leaving the Obama administration, life inside the bubble, I, I, I'm always very complimentary when it comes to talking about the personal characteristics of Obama, and, and not politically, of course. I, I think if you listen to the show, you know that. But I, I don't get into a lot of the personal stuff with 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 Obama because it's just. One, there was so much material to to beat them on politically that getting into like this and forget about violence. I'm just talking about nasty personal stuff. The fact that Kathy Griffin, someone thought it was a good idea to tell her uh, with ISIS and all the beheadings and all this real stuff going on in the real world 
that it was a good idea to put a decapitated head of Donald Trump uh, and her holding it uh, is just uh, beyond sick. I mean, it's really sad. It really is. I, I don't feel bad for her because she's done stupid stuff like this and her mm. apology was phony. Yeah. yeah, it was totally artificial. But I've been getting a lot of questions on my Facebook page and email and everything else saying, hey, can you please address this from the Secret Service perspective, mm. how this is going to happen? So here's how this works, folks, in the Secret Service. The relevant statute here is 18 U.S.C. 871. U.S.C. stands for United States Code. 18 U.S.C. 871 is the criminal code section that covers threats to the president. And here it is in a nutshell for you and how the Secret Service is, is obligated to go forward on these cases based on the criminal statute. There are two components of the criminal statute when it comes to pictures like that of the, the decapitated head of a president. Mm-hmm. It has to be done, the threat. It has, to, it has to be done knowingly and willingly. Now, there's two. Com- you have to have both components. It's not an either or. So let's talk about knowingly first. And she definitely fits the knowingly category. If I were to type a, a, let's say, an email threat to the president, let's make it even easier example. Let's say it's a snail mail threat. And I put it in an envelope and I address it to the White House. And I say, hey, Joe, can you do me a favor? Can you mail this? And you have no idea what it is, but it's a a threat to the president. Mm -hmm. And you mail it. Mm -hmm. Technically, you've committed a crime. Right. But the reality is you haven't because 871 requires... uh, knowingly and you didn't know mm-hmm. you didn't know it was in the envelope so there's no disputing the fact that kathy griffin actually technically you didn't commit a crime i should be precise on that especially if we're going to talk legalities kathy griffin there's no question she knowingly did it it's her she agreed to it she's on tape talking about the ramifications of it so she knowingly did this now was this a willing threat to the life of the president this is where you get into some legal kind of illegal problems here now this was unquestionably in horrendously bad taste but can you make a legal case in court if you were to go arrest kathy griffin for uh, for threatening the president that she willingly did this understanding that this was a legitimate threat there's in other words there's some kind of a intent criminal mind mens rea component to this that this was willingly done to show like this was a threat to the president of the united states like she she knew and understood that this was a threat yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, folks, I think it, the Secret Service is probably going to go and interview her. I'm guessing. I, have, I don't have any inside information on it. I haven't asked. I tried not to get involved in active threat investigations or call up contacts about this stuff because it's very sensitive. I don't want to put people on the spot. But my guess is knowing the Secret Service, she's going to get a visit. But I don't think she's going to be arrested. I just don't because there's absolutely no way a prosecutor is going to be able to prove that she really was going to go and decapitate the president. It's just not going to happen. I just I can't. I'm, I'm just I mean, I may disappoint you. I understand it was in horrendously bad taste, right. but I, I don't think anything legally is going to happen to her. Uh, I think her career's over. Uh, I think she's going to suffer greatly for this. But I just want to address one more component of this, Joe, because it's really important. And I think from an inside Secret Service perspective, I need to put this out there as a warning to any other far left radical nutbag like Kathy Griffin, who thinks this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, in my 12 years as a Secret Service agent, I spent a lot of time in protective intelligence squads. Now, I addressed this in my third book coming out in September. But protective intelligence investigations are threat, basically threat cases. People threaten the president. And there's a specific squad of Secret Service agents in each office, and they go out, and that's what they do. We do threat analysis, and we determine if that person's a threat. Folks, there are people out there with severe psychological disturbances who do not – they live in, in an entire set of delusional belief systems. 
this kind of stuff, if it even remotely incentivizes one of these troubled people to go forth and do something that was only previously just an afterthought in their mind, mm-hmm. then you know you have a role in causing a real national crisis. Now, I'm not saying that Kathy Griffin's stupid, uh, poor taste, horrible picture is going to inspire someone to do this, but I also can't tell you with 100% certainty that it wouldn't. Because I've interviewed these people, and if you hear them talk, you would be like, my gosh, these people live in a totally different world. I mean, I can't tell you how often we would hear things about aluminum foil. What aluminum foil? No, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. Like, I have an aluminum foil liner in my hat because it keeps the rays out of my head. That's not a joke. You know, Joe, like people say all the time about tinfoil cap. There's a reason that 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 that's said. Because it's true. A lot of people think that. Like the, the, the CIA's beaming rays in my head. I've heard that a thousand times. Nice. You see a picture like this and someone gets an idea. Like, oh, look, Kathy Griffin said it was okay. Let me follow through. You know, you have a role in causing a real destructive event. And I tweeted that out yesterday that in my time as a Secret Service agent, this woman, this D-list actress doesn't understand the damage these types of pictures can do. So, you know, we as conservatives call out fake conservatives when they used to do really dumb stuff with mm-hmm. Obama. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, it's the left's job now. And I applaud a lot of the people, by the way, to be fair to everyone in this. I applaud a lot of the people on the left who have called this out in unequivocal terms. Anderson Cooper did a good job calling it out uh, from CNN. He, of course, hosts the the New Year's Eve show with Kathy Griffin, and it was unequivocal, his condemnation. Chelsea Clinton as well, who said, listen, this is just a really stupid thing to do. So again, I disagree with these people politically, but I, I think we do have to be fair and say, you know, good job. We would do the same thing if someone were to, you know, if some D-list you know, clown on uh, on who claims to be a conservative put a picture of Obama. God forbid his head, uh, bloody head on there. Mm-hmm. We would be the first to call him out. And Joe, you and I have done this, so we have the bona fides mm-hmm. here. Listen to the show. We've certainly tried to stop nonsense on our own side. Hey, dude, um, as well. I'm, I'm glad you did this because when we were doing the show this morning, I was kind of hoping to hear it from your perspective as an ex Secret Service agent, and because well, you know all the ins and outs, and I, I appreciate yeah. that. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I, I got a lot of uh, Facebook messages on it too, and people were, you know, they they were interested in knowing what's going on. Okay, um, the Universal Basic Income Show. I got a, I'm get the feedback has been just incredible on this show. I mean, it just continues to go on and on. Uh, I don't want to recap the show again because I don't like wasting any of your time. But the the show was about Mark Zuckerberg's speech. Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook gave a speech, and he suggested that everybody in the United States should be entitled to a universal basic income, which is exactly that. It's say a government check for we you know the amount the the amounts and how it's going to be handled are there are a number of different proposals but for the sake of brevity on this show let's say it was just thirty thousand dollars everybody would get a check from the government for thirty thousand mm. dollars now I, I did I'm strongly against this but a woman emailed me yesterday and I appreciate the feedback on the show I think her name is Chris or, or I'm sorry if, if it's not Chris my apologies but I got a lot of email on this so it's hard to keep track of the names. And she said, well, listen, you know, you're not really explaining it right. I mean, this could be done a number of different ways and it could be done by a sliding scale. And I I did kind of address that in the show. Now, granted, you are correct. I didn't go into that portion in detail. Right. And I said, the problem with it is once you create the income cliff, no one's going to want to work past a certain amount of money. So let's say you get the $30,000 check from the government if you make up to $30,000 a year. But if you make $30,001, you get nothing. Now, that creates a tax rate of 100%. At $30,001. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Because you can either do no work and get $30,000, or you can work your butt off, get $30,001. 
So you effectively have a tax rate of 100% because the minute you work for $1 more than 30000 the government takes all the money it gave to you before, which is your entire the equivalent of your entire income. Mm-hmm. So now you're working for almost for nothing because you don't have to work. You could have worked a dollar less uh, or not worked made a, and just taken the $30,000 check for sitting home. So I said, the problem were income clips. And she said, well, what if there was kind of a sliding scale? And I, I did kind of address this a little bit. In other words, what if you made like $30,001 and then the check was $29,999? You get what I'm saying, Joe? Yeah. And if you made $30,002, it was $29,998, the check from the government. Yeah, I get it, folks. I totally get it. But I, I don't think you're considering the problem with that then. Well, when do you start paying taxes? In other words... Now, in effect, like what happens? Like, does it go down until you make sixty thousand dollars and you get a one dollar check? So, in other words, Joe, if, if you make fifty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine, mm-hmm. do you get a one dollar check from the government? So, like a sliding scale. When did the when does the tax paying start? Because mm-hmm. remember, at fifty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars, Joe, right? You're still getting a dollar from the government. You're not paying for anything. So now the government, the problem I have with this whole thing is it creates disastrous income tax cliffs if you do it where, where let's say we do to the poverty line. Everybody gets a $30,000 check up to the poverty line. That's the reason conservatives say everybody has to get it, regardless of income. Or you have to make it really, really high so it doesn't matter. In other words, you have to make it that, Joe, everybody gets a $30,000 check up to, say, $500,000 a year, whatever. And then after that, people don't care. I mean, they're not going to not work at $500,000 a year. Okay, uh, folks, those are reasonable proposals, too. The problem is then it gets really expensive. I, the problem I'm trying to tell you is either way you lose. If you give it to everyone to avoid the income tax cliffs, if you give it to everyone, it's super expensive. It costs between 4 and $6 trillion a year. If you don't give it to everyone and you just give it to the poor, it incentivizes people who are poor to not go to work because they're being paid not to work. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying, Joe? Yeah. And then with the scale problem, well, how does the scale work? When do people actually start paying taxes? Folks, it's a mess. Now- Another critique I got about this, and I, my sincere apologies to the audience, is, Joe, we did the show on a universal basic income. We made a huge mistake. Not we, not we, we did? It? Yeah, it wasn't you. It was me. <laughs> I never like to leave the audience without an answer. And I even said, if you go back and listen to the show, and I'm going to propose a better way forward at the end. And I didn't do it because I got so <laughs> lost in the wonkery. It happens. I'm sorry. Sure. So here's my proposal. The universal basic income is a dumb idea. It's just a stupid idea. There's some good stuff out there, the negative income tax, some decent stuff. But the best way to do this going forward is the fair tax. That is my opinion. What's the fair tax? Scrap all of this stuff with the, you know, with with with, with the government handing out income checks to people. Scrap all. You mm. can keep a safety net if you want. I I I personally think right now that the, you know, that we could get into the wonkeries of S chip and Medicaid, but on on a pure, economically efficient way of, of looking at a society in general, the best way to do it is the fair tax. And it, the fair tax, for those of you who don't understand what it is, the fair tax is basically a national sales tax. It would replace the income tax. There's a uh, sunset provision in the clause if the income tax doesn't go away. For those of you worried like, oh, well, they'll do a, you know, then they'll do a sales tax and an income tax. The sales tax would sunset. The fair, there is legislation out there now for the fair tax. It's a national sales tax. And the reason I believe in the fair tax, and I think it's a better idea is, folks, a, Taxes are a disincentive to do something. 
There's no other way to look at it. If you buy a chair, I'm looking at a chair in my uh, studio in front of me. If you buy a chair and the tax is 10%, it increases the price 10%. Nobody cares. In other words, Joe, when you go home with the chair, do you ever say to your significant other or little Joe, hey, Joe, I bought this chair for $50, but don't worry, Joe, only 40 to $5 was the price. The other 5% was just tax. Of yes. course you don't. Never discussed. <laughs> Never. You come home and you say, I paid $50 for the chair. Right. So if you only have $45 for a chair, and that's the price of the chair, Joe, right? 45 the rest is tax. Mm-hmm. I got news for you. You're still not buying the chair because you only have $45. You don't get to go into the store and negotiate the tax. The point I'm trying to make is that tax is a disincentive to buy something. So when we disincentivize things and we increase the cost of it, whether it's a chair or in the case of an income tax, we're increasing the price of work. Mm. Work costs you money. Why does work cost you money? Mm. Because the more you work, the more you make, generally speaking. The more you make, we have a progressive income tax in the United States. The more you make, the more you pay. Right. Folks, these are just laws of basic economics. The more you increase the price of something, the more you create a disincentive. It's not a total disincentive. I'm not suggesting that because we have a progressive income tax system where the more you make, the more you earn, and the more you pay as a percentage of your income. I'm not suggesting that that disincentivizes people to work at all. I'm just saying that there's no question it's a real effect. And if it disincentivizes 2 or 3% of our population from working more, Joe, that's a lot less stuff that gets produced and a lot less wealth that gets produced because people are disincentivized to do stuff. The fair tax wipes all that out because what does this fair tax disincentivize? A sales tax doesn't increase the price of work. It increases the price of consumption. Mm-hmm. And you may say, well, well, why is that a good thing? We need to, consumption is a good thing. Folks, consumption can be a good thing. But consumption is generally the destruction of wealth. Our national wealth is accumulated by savings, by saving, saving, savings that pours into our capital structure, that invests in factories, that create new stuff, that makes stuff cheaper. Consumption, if I buy a hot dog and I eat it, I consumed it. I essentially destroyed it. Now, because we need consumption to stay alive. But when you disincentivize consumption in favor of savings, because remember, in a fair tax, a national sales tax, you're not taxed on your income or your savings at all. Joe, you could accumulate wealth your entire life and not pay a dime in taxes on it, at least at the federal level. Like that. Yeah, of course you'd like it. (laughs) And later in life. And also, by the way, the rich tend to consume more. So it tends to work in a progressive fashion. Now, people say, well, the poor consume more as a percentage of their income. In other words, even if the rich, let's say you're worth a billion and you spend a million a year, Mm. you're still spending more than poor people. But as a percentage of your income, it's less. But it's still a million dollars spent. Right. Now, if you're poor and you make 20000 a year, you're probably consuming all of it to stay alive. So fair enough, but still, the rich are still paying a really heavy portion of it. So the fair tax is the way to go, and that's you know that's uh, one of the reasons I, I think it's a really good idea. All right. Hey, I want to get to two other stories, but uh, before I get to that, I get a, we got a sponsor here, a friend at Birch Gold. Yeah, th- listen, thanks to everyone, by the way, who's been going to birchgold.com slash Dan and requesting their free information kit. The feedback here has been incredible. You know, stock market volatility high right now. Listen, there's nothing wrong with investing in stocks, but me, I'm a big believer in safety, security. Volatility scares me a little bit. That's why I love Birch Gold. These guys are great. You know, protect yourself against inflation. It's a big deal. I talk about it on the show all the time. Loose monetary policies have contributed to the debasing of the U.S. dollar. The traditional safe haven has always been precious metals. I'm looking at a big five-ounce piece of silver right in front of me that Birch Gold sent to me. Right now, if you go contact birchgold.com slash Dan, these guys will tell you about a little-known IRS tax law you can use to move your IRA or eligible 401k into an IRA backed by the real thing, physical gold and silver. 
perfect for those who want to ensure their hard-earned savings say safe safety i'm big into the safety stuff maybe it's my secret service thing visit birchgold.com slash dan b-i-r-c-h gold.com slash dan request your free information kit these guys are a plus rated by the better business bureau they have countless five-star reviews go check them out i'm not making any of this up folks i don't take on garbage sponsors these guys are the real deal learn how investing in gold and silver can protect your savings today all right um i saw a a awesome story on kind of a pet peeve of mine i thought about it in conjunction with the paris accords thing and i just wanted to quickly hammer home some points on it walter williams has a piece in the daily signal today which i will put in the show notes walter williams is a fantastic economist who was allegedly told once by another famous economist that you know walter when you talk about liberty talk about it with a smile and i always found that story kind of humorous <laughs> And he, he, he writes this piece about overpopulation, and I thought it was a good piece to talk about quickly in, in relationship to how the left has got us all in a tizzy about how you know the world's going to blow up, global warming, global cooling, climate change, the polar bears are dying, the sky's falling. And one of the things they constantly harp on is overpopulation, how it's such a big problem. And folks, I bring this up because you want to get to know Dan Bongino a little bit right now? I'm going to tell you a little, if, if you're interested. And I just did a Bob Dole, so forgive me. Bob Dole. Bob Dole <laughs> says, never talk about yourself in a third person. Yeah, you does. want to get to know me a little bit? One of the things that turned me on to conservatism when I was very young, I'm not kidding. I was in a pharmacy. I was waiting for a prescription. I was really sick. And I picked up a book off the shelves, and it was written by a conservative. And I'm, the only reason I'm not saying who is because I'm not sure it's this author, <laughs> but I remember reading the passage vividly and it was a chapter on overpopulation and it just debunked overpopulation myths. And I was in college at the time and I thought, overpopulation isn't real? Like if there was one thing, Joe, I thought was real, right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, we're clearly all like, we're all going to die. The mothership is, we're all going to starve in the future. The mothership is overpopulated. The mm. earth is dying. And I read the chapter and I I, I'm not making this up, folks. You know, it wasn't the road to Damascus moment, but it started me on the road to Damascus, the conversion, because I started to question everything. Like, is that, wow, if overpopulation isn't true, like, is Keynesian economics legit? Like, is government debt, government spending legit? And I started to question everything. Williams has a piece today, which just debunks this whole overpopulation stupidity. And in light of the climate accords and all this other stuff, I thought it'd be a good time to talk about it. Here's just some numbers for you. Here's one from me. This isn't from the Williams piece, but I'll get to that in a second. Joe, the acreage in the continental United States, the lower 48, right? Yeah. So get rid of Alaska and Hawaii for a minute. The acreage. We have 1.9 billion acres in the lower 48. Again, we're not even talking about it. Alaska, which is huge, and Hawaii, which is not so huge, but still a state nonetheless, you know, Obama, 57 states and all. Mm -hmm. How many people are in the world? Well, 7.5 billion. So just as a matter of simple math, before we even get into some other economic stuff on this that Williams just totally throws out, do you realize if we stuck every single person in the continental United States, we could give them a quarter acre of land? My house by the way, which is not expensive, but isn't cheap either. And I love my house. My, my sister's in town today. She's like, you got a really nice house. My house is about a quarter acre. You could give every person in the whole world a quarter acre lot in the United States and the whole rest of the world would be empty. Hmm. The whole rest, all of China, all of Russia, all of Antarctica, all of the Arctic, all of India, Pakistan, you name it. Turkey, you can empty out the entire world and give people a quarter acre home in the United States. Ah, mm. uh, does that sound overpopulated to you? 
Now that's just now there are all kinds of analogies like this. I someone was telling me once if we built apartment buildings in Texas that we could stick everybody in the world in the state of Texas with the equivalent floor space of the average apartment in France. I don't remember that the exact numbers on that, but the other one I just told you is just a fact. We have 1.9 billion acres in the United States, 7.5 billion people. It's roughly a quarter acre of land for every person in the entire world. Hmm. I mean, you could create like your own farm in the yard. The whole rest (laughs) of the world would be abandoned. But again, debunking this stupidity, Walter Williams, I hadn't actually considered the economics of this. He goes, this is from the piece. Let's put you, the reader, to a test. See whether you can tell which country is richer and which is poorer just by knowing two countries' population density. So let's just be clear. Let's set the premise here, Joe. If the liberal kookadoodles are right and overpopulation is a problem, then places with higher population density that are, quote, overpopulated would really be suffering, right? Joe, is that a reasonable premise? That sounds good to me. Sounds good to you. Of course it does, because you're the audience on Mm Buzzman. Okay, Williams goes on. North Korea's population density is 518 people per square mile. Whereas South Korea is more than double that at 1,261 people per square mile. Hmm. Hong Kong's population density is 16,444 people per square mile. Whereas Somalia's is 36. One more. Congo has 75 people per square mile. Singapore has 18,513 people per square mile. Hmm. Now, if you're, again, lefty wackos, please tune out now. This is where we do the facts and the reasonable portion of the show segment, so you can feel free to tune out now. For all the people left who are the smart ones, <laughs> okay, let's look at the gross domestic products of these countries. One would have to be a lunatic to believe that the smaller population density leads to greater riches. North Korea's uh, gross domestic product expressed in U.S. dollars. It's seventeen thousand three hundred and ninety uh seventeen thousand three hundred and ninety six. And these are in millions of US dollars. This is not in this is not seventeen thousand you know what I'm saying? You gotta times it by a million. Yeah. So North Korea, seventeen thousand three hundred and ninety six. South Korea, one million four hundred and eleven thousand two hundred and forty six. Hmm. Hong Kong, three hundred twenty thousand six hundred sixty eight, Somalia, five thousand seven hundred and seven. Congo, 41,615. Singapore, 296,967. Seems to Folks, be a correlation. Seems to be a correlation between higher population density, yeah. higher population density, <laughs> and economic prosperity. Now, of course, liberals, I'm serious. Like, Don't let facts get in the way of a really stupid argument, because I, it, almost nothing they say is ever true. That's been kind of an ongoing theme of this show. But debunking it is so easy that it only requires a modicum of research for you to make your liberal friends look silly. The simple takeaway is this. If overpopulation is a problem, then how come countries with a greater population density than poor countries are, in fact, rich and the other ones are poor? It doesn't make any sense. The correlation is the uh, the opposite. It's the inverse. You're just making it up. (laughs) And again, the fact that we're overpopulated, what are you basing that on? I mean, what do you the fact we could fit everybody in the world in the United States with a quarter acre of property and abandon the rest of the globe? Again, in some limited circles, we would call that a clue. But again, not you guys. All right. Hey, one more thing I got from uh, an email. I know I'm stuffing a lot in today's show, but yesterday we had record. If I told you how many downloads we got on yesterday's show, folks, you'd it'd blow your mind. Like I, I was... Me and Joe this morning were like, Ooh. did that just happen yesterday? Yeah. We're doing like the numbers of like a big major market radio station. So thank you. Like a big fat thank you to you. 
but I have been getting a lot of feedback on stuff, and I, I like to address it. One guy sent me a uh, email about purchasing power parity. Remember we did the thing on US GDP? Folks, US GDP, we are the king of the hill. We are an $18 trillion economy. Everybody think, oh, China, China's... Uh, th- th- Folks, China's nowhere close. They're at 11 trillion. Japan's 4.3 trillion. Russia, 1.3 trillion. And the point I tried to make is despite eight years of Barack Obama, we are still kicking caboose when it comes to GDP and our economy. Well, a guy sent me a nice email and he said, Yeah, but I've heard this, uh, you know, lefties try to debunk this, say, Well, based on purchasing power parity, the Chinese really have a bigger GDP in the United States. Let me just throw a fire extinguisher on that silly liberal fire right away because everything liberals say is pretty much true. And, you know, there's some conservatives who will try and argue this stuff too. Purchasing power parity is, is, is in essence, is this. It's the idea that your money in China and the local currency can buy a similar or greater amount of stuff as, as your money in the United States can. Folks, it, the whole idea of that, though, is silly because it requires domestic production. The idea is, Joe, well, if the economy's not doing that great, mm-hmm. then people aren't working for high wages. So I seen I saw one example. So if you go get a haircut in China, it may cost you a dollar in US dollars. But if you get a haircut in the United States, it may cost you $20. So technically purchasing power, right? Gotcha. Parity, parity, excuse me. You can accumulate a relatively similar basket of goods for far less money. Uh, Folks, the whole idea of that is silly. The idea of making international comparisons, though, is not taking out those variables. In other words, not saying like, Joe, Mm -hmm. here's the problem with getting a haircut in China. Mm -hmm. You're in China. (laughs) That's the problem. That's the whole reason purchasing power parity stinks. You're in an authoritarian regime. You don't have the access to the United States court systems and contract law, our entertainment, our restaurants, our dining, our clean food system. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. That's why purchasing power parity is stupid. Purchasing power parity. That's like a really nasty tongue twister. That's why the whole idea of it's dumb. I My humble opinion is deployed by lefties to talk down the U.S. economy and say, oh, well, just because the U.S. economy is 18 trillion and China's 11, you can buy more in China. Yeah, you're in China. That's why Chinese, the Chinese, everybody wants to immigrate to the United States or emigrate to the United States. That's the whole point. It doesn't make any sense. I don't want to get a haircut in China. I want to get a haircut in the United States. <laughs> the extra money I'm paying, one I'm making more, is for access to the United States system of government. It's just, I, I think it's just so that that's my uh, to the person who emailed me. It was a I think it was a guy. Um, that's my answer to that. That purchasing power parity is just silly. In this case, nominal GDP I think does matter. Uh, I, you know, I have used some different arguments when it comes to Scandinavian countries to debunk socialism, but that's different because we, when you people say, "Well, oh, purchasing power parity," they'll argue for you know Denmark and Sweden and say, "Well, look, you know they're wealthier in the United States and in nominal terms." And I, I discussed this on a prior show. The bottom line yeah. is this: they're paying for a massive cost of government over there as well. So it just it doesn't apply. You have to live in these countries in order to get access to their markets, and nobody wants to do it. So that's why it's a silly system. All right, folks, please don't miss tomorrow's show. This is important. I want to discuss this this thing on this idea called critical theory. There was a th- an incident that happened in a college in Washington that was really horrendous. There was a like day of absence, they called it, where all the white oh, people wrestled. Did you hear this story? Oh, uh, yeah. There's something behind this that you really need to know about and need to understand in order to effectively argue with your liberal friends. I'm talking about your smart liberal friends, not your stupid ones. There are a lot of dumb ones who know nothing. I'm talking about the ones who actually understand this thing called critical theory and what this is. It's very, very, very damaging. 
And on tomorrow's show, I'm going to break it down for you and tell you why that thing that happened in that college campus where white people were supposed to leave the campus, why this is symptomatic of a larger ideological fight you have to be read in on. All right, folks, thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you all tomorrow. You just heard the Dan Bongino Show. Get more of Dan online anytime at conservativereview.com. You can also get Dan's podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud. And follow Dan on Twitter 24-7 at DBongino.